morning, Valley Church. I want to greet you from our Valley Church to your Valley Church. We're so thankful to be back here today. Um, I, I mentioned the last time we were here at the beginning of June, um, it coincided just with the time that we send out our monthly newsletter, that we were just, maybe this is a trite way to say it, but we were just blown away by this body, by the worship, by you know, the fellowship and the people here. And once again, your, your worship team, obviously talented musicians, but let's put that aside just for a second. Just rarely have I been in a, in a church where the worship team is so gifted at bringing us into the presence of God. You feel like you're just inches away from the throne of God. And so once again, to everyone who, who makes that happen, thank you for exercising your gifts with faithfulness. And uh, it, I've, you know, it's rare that a pastor is speechless. I'm, I'm speechless. Yeah, that's good. So thank you. I know Megan and the rest of the team, I know you all put in such a, an incredible amount of time and work. So thank you for that. It's just a blessing. And, and you are talented, but not everyone who is a talented musician can, can worship. So thank you for that. So I think Greta's going to help us out this morning. She's going to get us going here. We're going to be in, in 1 Kings... Um, chapter 17, so if you want to turn in your Bible there or on your device, turn to 1 Kings 17. Um, we're going to be taught, this is a very, very well-known narrative in the scripture. Uh, it's the beginning of the prophet Elijah's ministry. And a little bit later on in, in this narrative, um, God feeds the, and, and cares for the, the prophet Elijah through a small brook, a little stream, and ravens bring him food. And so Greta's going to start us out this morning in just a second. She's going to play us a video, different kind of bird, different kind of situation, but it's going to set the stage for what we're going to do here this morning. So let's go ahead and, and play that video. I think you'll get a kick out of it. you can imagine the birdman of Aberdeen's pilfered more than 20 bags in the last few weeks always tangy cheese Doritos well there it is so while I do not advocate stealing not even from birds I, I have to say the bird has good taste who likes Doritos right tangy cheese you know that I'm sure it's probably cancer-causing, but that orange powder they put on Doritos, I would put that on everything, right? Like mix it in like Kool-Aid. I, I, I love it. I, I could, anything, anything on there. So the bird has good taste. Um, <clears throat> this particular bird, a, a little self-serving. We're going to transition a little bit later on in our narrative to um, just understanding that God is in control of everything, including the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, all this kind of thing. But Keep in mind this little bird here, because a little bit later we're going we're gonna to talk about birds again. Now, in our passage this morning, in 1 Kings chapter 17, God raised up a very ordinary guy named Elijah. This person was not one of the great people. He was not a mover and shaker. He was an ordinary guy, and we're going to talk about that again in a little bit as well. 
God called him out of obscurity to confront a very evil king named Ahab and a very evil queen named Jezebel. And he sent this guy a little bit later on to a very lonely ravine away from everything that was familiar. And it was in that place that, that God began to teach Elijah a very important lesson, a lesson that we quite, quite frankly need to learn, at least I do, over and over you know, again in life. God used a very small brook and a few ravens to show Elijah and to show us by extension that he knew exactly what he was doing in this guy's life and he knows exactly what he's doing in our lives as well. And so when we approach scripture, you'll see here on the screen, um, the, the next slide over, um, what do we need to know? When we approach scripture, there's something that God wants us to know. There's, there's an idea, there's a thought, there's a principle that God wants us to know. And what, what we need to know from this passage here this morning is that, that God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. And I know there's times where it may not seem like it. I know it, there's times where your life feels like it's coming apart at the seams, but God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. It's right on track to where he wants it and to where he wants you. So we're starting out with that particular premise. God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. Now, you don't have to raise your hands, but have you ever experienced trial in your life? Yeah, <laughs> brother's laughing. We, hanging on by fingernails, we were talking about earlier, weren't we? Yeah. Have you ever experienced setback or disappointment or heartbreak or let's call it disequilibrium? That's a fancy way of saying uh, things are kind of crazy right now. In the face of hardship, have you ever been tempted to think that God has forgotten about you? that God doesn't care about you, that God's mad at you, that God simply isn't concerned with what's going on in your life. These are very common reactions that we all sometimes have to pain and suffering. And what we're going to learn in our passage of Scripture here this morning is that uh, this story reminds us that these things aren't true, these ideas that God has forgotten about us or God doesn't care about us or God is mad at us. These, these aren't true. They're, they're lies that we're tempted to believe. God introduces change into our lives. That's also a nice way of saying, well, I really don't like this right now, but it's change, right? God introduces change into our lives in order to transform us into the image of the son that he loves. Now, it's very easy to say that statement. Sometimes it's really, really hard to live through it. The greatest good that God can do to us is to make us like Jesus, the greatest good that God can do to us is to make us like Jesus. And I know when you're in the thick of it, there's times where you just don't want to hear that statement. It seems like a platitude. It seems like, you know, Sunday morning, Christian face, put on the good face, put on the, the good clothes, but inside everything is falling apart. In the mystery of the wisdom of God, God works most powerfully in us when he introduces trial and setbacks and disequilibrium into our lives. And I know on one level we know that that's true, but sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we forget that. In 1 Kings chapter 17, we begin the story of how God worked powerfully in the prophet Elijah's life. And you guessed it, he worked through trial and through setback and through disappointment. The story reminds us that, that the presence of God's refining power in our lives is often difficult, but it, it's always good. It's often difficult, but always good. So 
I think it's important for us to understand the background of the life and times and ministry of Elijah because it provides context for, for what he went through and for the lessons we can learn. So we know that Israel started out with a king named Saul, and God wasn't really crazy about Israel having a human king. He wanted to be their king, but the people wanted a king, so he gave him Saul. Didn't go so well with, with Saul. It was a disaster. The guy looked really good on the outside, but on the inside, it was, he was not a good guy. Then we had David. Then we had Solomon. And there were some good things with David and Solomon, and there were some really challenging things with David and Solomon as well. They ruled over Israel a total of 100 years. And at the end of Solomon's life, a civil war broke out, and, and the kingdom of Israel split. There were 10 northern tribes in, in the north. They split away, and they, called, uh, they formed a new kingdom called Israel. So 10 tribes in the north, Israel. Two tribes in the south remained, and they were called Judah. And that was the focal point of, of the spiritual life of Israel in, in Judah, the temple in Jerusalem, and all this kind of thing. So from the very beginning of, of this split, the northern kingdom of Israel just strayed away from God right from the, the beginning. We're going to see a, another slide here um, in, in the beginning of the history of the northern tribes of Israel their first king, Jeroboam, he set up uh, some golden calves. Remember the last time there were golden calves in Israel's story, you know, at the base of Mount Sinai? It didn't go so well, right? It didn't go so well. So this guy decides, hey, let's do that. That seemed like a, a good thing. So he sets up these golden calves to be worshipped way in the north of Israel in a, a town called Dan, and in the south in a town called Bethel. And this really marked the beginning of a continual downward spiral of sin for the nation of Israel, which eventually led to them being taken captive by the nation of Assyria. Now, as if Israel wasn't messed up enough, in steps this guy called Ahab and his wife Jezebel, and they made it even worse. So let's go to 1 Kings. But remember how I said we're going to start in 17? Let's just back up uh, to chapter 16, 29 to 33, just right at the end. You may not even have to turn the page, but let's get a little bit of history here. 1 Kings 16, 29 to 33. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, son of Omri, became, became king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel for 22 years. And they were 22 long, terrible years, by the way. Verse 30. Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. So if you're going to get a little deal in, in Scripture, like, you're not striving for this. I mean, this, this guy was on the naughty list. Verse 31, he not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat. Remember the guy who set up the golden calves? Like the first day that he gets the kingdom in Israel, he sets up those golden calves. Ahab didn't not only consider that trivial, he went a step beyond. He also married Jezebel, son of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he began to serve Baal and worship him. Verse 32, he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Not good. Ahab also made an Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. So, not good to start out. So he marries this, this lady named Jezebel, and she was a princess of Sidon, which was a country just to the you know, just to the west, and they institutionalized the worship of Baal, this false god called Baal in, in Israel. 
Now, Sidon was Baal's hometown, and we'll see another slide here. Baal was worshipped as the god of rain. Um, maybe one more slide. There he is. Baal was worshipped as the god of rain. He was worshipped as the one who brought fertility to people and to livestock. And it was thought that Baal changed the, the turns of the seasons and, and grew crops and all this kind of stuff. So Israel, like a lot of places around here, Iowa, where we live right now, was an agrarian society. They grew crops. And so Baal was thought to make all of that kind of stuff happen. Now, Asherah was worshipped as the mother of Baal. And you hear about Asherah poles all through the scripture. They were pillars in the shape of the goddess. They were used in worship. And we don't have a picture of her because she's not dressed for church. As a matter of fact, she's pretty much not dressed at all. So we're not going to show any images of her because that would not be appropriate and we don't need to see that. So whenever you hear about Asherah poles in scripture, it, it's not good. It's funky. This is not good stuff. So at this point in Israel's history, there is this huge chasm between God and his people. Really, it was probably at its widest up to this point. It was a time of lawlessness. It was a time of despair. It was a time when allegiance to, to God was essentially non-existent. So these are the life and times where God says, Elijah, I want you to step up and, and I want you to do some things for me. So now you know a little bit of history. So plunging full force into all of this era of gross evil and weirdness steps the prophet Elijah. And his name, by the way, means the Lord is my God. So even just his name was like a testimony in these, in these times. So now let's go to 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in, in Gilead said to Ahab, so God says, hey, Elijah, I want you to leave your farm, leave your livestock. I want you to go and confront the most evil and dangerous man in your world. So Elijah does. He said to Ahab, as the Lord the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. So kind of an odd thing for him to say, right? Of all the things that maybe God could have had him say to uh, Ahab, he says this. Well, the message that God had Elijah deliver was very simple. Because just a little bit ago, we talked about the fact that Baal was worshipped. Now, Baal is a false god, he, a demon that had some power but isn't really God. But he was worshipped as the god who brought rain. And so God is, is, is essentially saying through Elijah to Ahab, Ahab, you and Jezebel think that Baal is God in Israel. You think that he brings the rain. But today, uh, the God of Israel is telling you that he alone is God. Baal is a, a false God. And the true God is going to keep away the rain. And there's nothing that you can do about it, Ahab. There's nothing Jezebel can do about it. And there's certainly nothing that your false demon God, who you think brings rain, can do about it. So this was a very direct attack Kind of similar to what God did with the ten plagues of Egypt, where he, uh, each plague addressed one of the false gods of Egypt. Same thing here. So God says, you think Baal brings rain? I'm going to prove you wrong. And so there's no rain. Now look at verse 2. Then the word of the Lord, so after this big confrontation, and it was pretty intense. We kind of learn about that a little bit later in Elijah's ministry. Um, I wouldn't have been really thrilled about confronting a guy like Ahab. Um, a little bit later, verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kareth ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook 
and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Now, it's not seagulls bringing him, you know, Doritos, which probably wouldn't have been bad, um, but, you know, they were doing something else. So, in verse 5, it says that, that Elijah did what the Lord told him to do. He went to the Kareth Ravine east of the Jordan, and he stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. So, there we go. This is where we are in the life and times of Elijah. Maybe, as if you think about this, I mean, I've thought about this, and I thought, kind of an odd turn of events, don't you think? Um, it seems like God would have used Elijah in the same way that he used Moses. You know, Moses was continually in Pharaoh's face, let my people go and doing all these things, but, but God... Um, has Elijah just kind of make this big splash on the scene, confront Ahab, there's not going to be any rain or dew until, until the Lord says, and then he takes Elijah, he completely removes him from the scene and tells him to go hide like out in the middle of nowhere in this ravine. Why was God telling Elijah to go hide in a ravine? On a human level, it just doesn't make sense, right? If God is, is on the move in this world, if God is moving and shaking, and we know he is, then why does he so often sideline his players with setback after setback after setback? Well, the Lord does this because he has things that he wants to accomplish deep within the inner lives of his servants. And I think a lot of times what feels like a setback to us isn't, isn't a setback to God, even though it feels like that to us. What's happening here is that God was preparing Elijah for a future that might destroy a less obedient, a less committed, and a less prepared servant. And I think people of God, church, every one of us here has experienced trial and suffering, is experiencing it now, or you guessed it, there's one coming right around the next bend or maybe the next couple bends in your life. And for us to really understand that when God allows us to experience these things, it's not this random, you know, chaos that just comes into our life. It, it's God-ordained. It's strength training. It's preparation for a future that might destroy a less obedient, a less committed, and a less prepared servant. In order for God to be truly glorified in Elijah's life, in order for this man to be truly used by God, he needed to learn what it meant to be humbled before God and to trust in the Lord when there was nothing else to trust in. Have you ever considered that? Maybe that's one of the chief reasons why God allows us to experience disequilibrium or trial in our lives. Because sometimes God needs to strip away the things that we rely on so that when these things are gone, we know that there's nothing else for us to trust in except for him. And so, God instructed Elijah to hide in this place called the Kareth Ravine. Now, we have no idea what that is. Maybe if you've been to Israel, maybe you've been there. But these people knew what it, what it was and, and where it was. And, and I think it's interesting. So sometimes you kind of need to dig into the language a little bit. And this word kareth in the original language, it, it means two things. Number one, it means to cut off. But it also means to cut down. Now, the word cut down or the phrase cut down, maybe in our thinking would be like to insult somebody or to mean to demean somebody or belittle somebody, but that's not what it means here. So we understand what it means to be cut off, to be isolated. But the word cut down here means to break, just to, to break, to, to take someone out of their own self-sufficiency and their own self-strength and just to break that so they rely 
on someone other than themselves. And it was there in this Kareth ravine that Elijah was cut off from everything that was familiar in his life. He was in complete isolation, just Elijah and God. But it was also there that the Lord cut him down. It was there that God broke him so that he could rebuild Elijah into a man of God. And there's a clue in the text here that, that maybe like an additional clue that gives us some understanding. Look at 1 Kings 17, verse 1. What is Elijah called there? He is called Elijah the Tishbite, right? Just like Pete from Victoria, Brian from Ankeny. Just, there's nothing special about that. Just Elijah from the place that he lives. But look at verse 24. You don't, you don't have to turn down, but if you're there, look at verse 24, the end of the chapter. What is, he, what is Elijah called at the end of the chapter? He's called Elijah a man of God. And so he went from being called Elijah the Tishbite, you know, Joe from Carver or whatever, to Elijah a man of God. So something happened in those intervening verses to make that change. In those intervening verses, God introduced a very sacred change into Elijah's life during his time in this Kareth ravine. He allowed this man of God to experience trial and setback and disappointment and heartache and it transformed Elijah into something great. Maybe not great in the world's eyes, but great in, in God's eyes. A person whose heart beats after the things of God. That's greatness in, in God's economy. That's greatness in God's eyes is someone whose heart beats after the things of God. I, I took a picture. I love this lyric. In the, I think it was the last song that the, the team led us in. It says, when you come into the room... When you do only what you can do, it changes us. It changes what we see and what we seek. Uh, that, that was like super providential that that song was chosen for today because God is interested in the course of the trials and setbacks in our lives to change what we see and to change what we seek. Our circumstances may not change, but the way we process it changes. And so that's what's happening in this man's life. Now look at 1 Kings 17, verse 7. The story continues. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. So, right, careful what you pray for. So Elijah was a farmer or, and or like someone who had livestock. And so he had the awesome ministry of praying for no rain. That's going to affect him as well. But it affects him in the brook here because all of a sudden, if it stops raining, at some time, this brook that is sustaining him is going to dry up, and it did. And so one morning, Elijah noticed something different about the brook. It wasn't flowing as, as it normally did, and since it was his lifeline, I'm sure he kept an eye on it. It dwindled down to a trickle, a little less of a trickle, less of a trickle. And one morning, there was nothing. There was no more water. The brook had dried up. Now, why did this happen? Well... This man left his home, left his family to risk his life confronting Ahab. And, you know, I mean, we're reading this stuff from the comfort of a, a safe and orderly and lawful land. You know, I know things are getting a little goofy in this country, but we still have peaceful elections and we still stop at stoplights. If you've traveled throughout the world, you just got back from Romania. This is still a pretty special place. And so um, Israel was not special at this time, and this 
this ministry that Elijah was called to was exceedingly dangerous. Ahab was like a Saddam Hussein, Adolf Hitler, you know, Joseph Stalin type guy. This was a bad guy. You know, sometimes we lose the, the energy of that. And so he confronts Ahab. He prays for a drought in his homeland. He moves into a ravine. He's eating food catered by ravens, which I guess I'd rather have that than nothing, but I don't really want to eat food in a nasty bird mouth. But, you know, I'm sure he's like, okay, Lord, this is what you have for me. I'm going to try not to complain, but I don't really like this. And then the brook dries up. This is the thanks that Elijah gets for all of like leaving everything and plowing forward and confronting this terrible guy and no rain and eating nasty bird mouth food and all this kind of stuff and, and the brook dries up and it's like, you know, if I was Elijah, I think I would have been tempted to think, so thanks, God. Right? I mean, I'm, am I just speaking for everybody in this room? You don't have to raise your hands, but you probably would have said that too, right? Thanks, God. This is, this is nice. You know, it's a good thing I obeyed you, you know? Maybe you can relate. Maybe at one point in your life you had enough resources, more than enough resources, but now you wonder how you're going to make ends meet, how you're going to provide for your family. Or maybe you know somebody who's going through that. The brook is dried up. There's been a significant change, you know? Remember 08, 09? Just billions of dollars just evaporated, you know? And, and I know people who are retired nowadays who are retired at like a much less level of what they thought they were going to be comfort-wise because a lot of their money just evaporated. And, and maybe you know something like that. The brook sometimes dries up financially in our lives. There was a time when you enjoyed the blessings of good health, but now the doctors say you, you can't do the things that you do. And, and it really feels to you like the brook has dried up. At one time, you had a good relationship with a friend or a family member, but now something has ended that relationship or seriously tweaked that relationship, and it really feels like the brook has dried up. You, you know, you, you're pondering the memories of someone that you loved with all your heart as, you know, I guess our next holiday is, is, is Labor Day coming up, you know as you approach another holiday, whatever time of the year it is, without, without this person that you love with all your heart, maybe a spouse, maybe a parent, maybe a child. You've been betrayed by somebody. You've been hurt by somebody. You've been let down, disappointed, had your heart broken like you've never had before in your life. The brook is dry, and you really can't make sense of it. And you wonder, God, I, I've made all these sacrifices for you. I've done this, and I've done that, and this is the thanks that I get. So we talked a little bit earlier what, what we need to know from this passage. And, and what we need to know is God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. Just he knows exactly. But why do we need to know this? Why is it important for us to know this? What do you do when the brook dries up in your life? Do you ever find yourself having doubts about God and about his word? It doesn't always happen on the sunny days and when you've you're on the mountaintop, but um, it happens when you're in the valley a lot of times. Do you ever feel like you're having doubts about the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, the strength and power of God, the compassion of God? Um, do you ever approach um, the Word of God and, and just think in these dry times, why, why bother, you know, why bother? Do you ever find yourself asking God, are, are you still there, God? It says you are in the Bible, but it doesn't feel like it right now. Do you still love me? Do you even care about me? 
Do you ever find yourself growing weary of waiting on an answer that never seems to come, right? Just, you read these, these things in the Psalms from David, how long, O Lord? Like, how many times have we been there? How long, O Lord? Do you ever find yourself during these, these dry times um, in just this desperate frustration, find yourself just drifting back into old patterns of distorted thinking, sinful actions, just just really finding yourself drifting away from God. You know, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters. Has anyone ever read that book, The Screwtape Letters? It's very interesting. I've never come across anything like it. Only C.S. Lewis, I think, could have thought this up. The book is it's a little, little odd, but bear with me if you, if you haven't read it. The, the book is written by a demon, and his name is Screwtape. And he's writing these letters, these correspondences, to his apprentice junior demon named Wormwood. And he starts out these letters, and it, it's a little odd, but it, the spiritual principles are just profound. But if you, know, if you can deal with the premise, it's, it's a good book. C.S. Lewis is like super theologically sound. It's not weird, but it, it's just a very interesting take. And, and one of the letters... Screw tape starts out, my dear Wormwood, and then he writes whatever little lesson he's trying to impart to this little junior demon. And he calls the Christian the subject, so we're the subject. This is what you have to do. You have to get the subject, us, to believe one or two things. Number one, get them to believe that the mountaintop experiences in life will never end. You know, come to Jesus and you'll get all of this stuff, and you'll never be sick, and you'll never have raindrops on your picnic, and everything will be unicorns and gumdrops and, and flower petals and all this kind of stuff, right? Never try to get them to believe that that stuff's never going to end, because it will eventually. You can't ride the high 24-7 for the rest of your life. If you get them to believe that, pretty soon the good times will end, and they'll become disillusioned. That's useful, Wormwood, but if you can do only one of these two things, get them to believe this second thing. Get them to believe that the trials, the valleys, he calls them the troughs, the low points. Get them to believe that the troughs, the low points, the trials, the setbacks, the disappointments, get them to believe that those will never end. Because if you can get them to believe that, they will despair. And despair is a lot more useful weapon for us than disillusionment. And so maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there today. You know, you've been riding in this trough, this low point for so long that you're in despair. And you think it's never going to end. You think God isn't there. You believe that he doesn't love you. It feels like he doesn't care. I wonder if this is how Elijah felt when his brook dried up. I think it is, guys. I do also believe that if he were here today, Elijah would tell us a couple things. He would tell us, number one, when, when your brook dries up, you need to remember this. And it, you'll see it on the screen here. You need to remember that God hasn't forgotten you, that he is in the process of refining you. And maybe refinement doesn't feel good all the time, but it, it's a good thing. You need to remember that, that God loves you most deeply through tears. And that's a bitter pill for us to swallow at times, but if we can embrace that, and so when I say embrace what God is doing through the setbacks, 
I'm not saying some like psychologically unhealthy, like I love pain and I love this, um, but, but embrace it. Embrace the fact that sometimes God loves you most deeply through tears. So what do we need to do? What's the takeaway for all of this? So we've learned a premise that, that God knows exactly what he's doing in our lives, and, and that head knowledge is the start, but it has to remain in our head, but it also has to go from our head to our hearts and then out through our mouths and our hands and our feet. So when we approach the scripture, there's always this deal of accumulation of data points, but then it has to sink into our hearts and play out through our lives. We can't be just hearers of the word. We have to also be doers. And so what do we need to do? Gretchen's going to show us the next slide. We need to be willing to be set aside in order to accomplish God's purposes. We need to be willing to be set aside in order to accomplish God's purposes. And that can take so many shapes, so many forms in our lives. And again, it's never fun, but the Lord told Elijah to go to the Kareth Ravine and he obeyed. So when God chooses to set us aside so that he can do a work in us, it's best to cooperate even though we may not understand um, whatever your deal is right now, a lot of times it's this thing in my life is not happening at the timetable that I want it to happen. Uh, that's usually, right? Who is a Lord of the Rings fan? J.R. Tolkien, <clears throat> right? J.R. Tolkien actually led C.S. Lewis to Christ. So it's a really interesting deal. So one of my favorite lines in the Lord of the Rings, when, when Gandalf is, if, I'm a nerd, by the way. So this is my baseball and football and hockey and, and all this kind of stuff. I... I love star, all this, my kids, yeah. Anyway, so, so I'm, I'm a super nerd. I'm going to dial it way back, right? I'm going to dial it back. But if you don't know what I'm saying, it doesn't matter. If you don't know these character names, you guys will, so you'll appreciate this, right? So Gandalf is rolling in to this little hobbit village called Hobbiton, and this little hobbit guy, he says, you're late. And Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. And that's God's deal. God is never early and he's never late. He arrives, say it with me, precisely when he means to. And so be willing to be set aside in order to accomplish God's purposes. Because in that being set aside, in that trial, we were talking about a set aside that you guys have been experiencing for a long time. What character refinement happens in that being set aside, what, what witness, uh, when, when, you know, suffering is a megaphone, someone once told me. We will broadcast something in, in the course of our suffering. Is it ugliness or is it the grace of God? And so this is very, very important to cooperate with the grace of God. His plans for us are always good. Write these two verses down, Jeremiah 29.11, Jeremiah 29.11, it's not up on the screen. Jeremiah 29, 11, and Romans 8, 28. You guys know these verses. It talks about the plans that God has for us, that they're always good, even though it may not feel good at the time. And just let that truth seep into your hearts. Visit those this week. So, the first thing is we need to be willing to be set aside in order to accomplish God's purposes. The second thing, and this may sound cliche, but it's super profound, and Gretchen has another slide for us. Trust him to provide one day at a time. Trust him to provide one day at a time. There it is on the screen. If it's on the screen, it's official, right? So let me, let me pull up something here. Trust God to provide one day at a time. The reason why we are so often tense 
and anxious and distracted is that we really haven't mastered the art of living one day at a time. I know I haven't mastered it. Have you? You don't have to answer. No, one's, no one wants to be the one that says no, right? We haven't. When God calls and directs us somewhere, he always provides. That's like a, a truth. Just when God calls and directs, he always provides. Um, Matthew chapter 6, 25 to 27. If you want to flip over to that real quick, I'm going to start reading just for sake of time. You guys have heard this a thousand times, but the thousand and one time is, is good too. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, in Matthew 6, 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or, what your, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Verse 26, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you? by worrying, can add a single hour to his or her life. We had such an interesting experience this morning eating breakfast on this screen porch. Uh, these four hummingbirds were coming around this like hummingbird feeder, and I had never seen a hummingbird land anywhere. I just, you always, and it was amazing to see them, and just God provides for these birds, and how we are of infinite more importance than these birds. So trust God to provide one day at a time. You know what? The troubles that are coming tomorrow, you and God can deal with those tomorrow. Live for today. Now, put money into your 401k, plan ahead for the future. That's not what God is saying, but don't get preoccupied and freaked out about things that probably won't even happen a month from now. The last thing I want to tell you, and the last slide that Gretchen's going to, or Greta, sorry, is going to show us, is the trials of life are evidence of God's work in your life. This may seem a little unusual, but bear with me. The trials of life are evidence of God's work in your life. A dried up brook, and that's our metaphor for trial and suffering, right? A dried up brook in our lives is often a sign of God's acceptance, not his disappointment in our lives, often. Now for sure, God does discipline his children. And sometimes trial and setback is a result of that, but much of the time it's not. Look at Abraham being called to sacrifice his son Isaac. That was a deal. The apostle Paul, the many trials he experienced, but one, there was a town called Lystra where he was pretty much stoned to death almost and left for dead outside of this city. Was God displeased that he was sharing the gospel? Look at Joseph put into an Egyptian prison for doing the right thing by like escaping the clutches of Potiphar's wife. And the best example of all, look at Jesus, the anguish of the garden of Gethsemane and, and the cross. Guys, there are just times in our lives where the trial and setback we experience is just a, a proof and part and parcel of the fact that God loves us and he loves us so much that he doesn't want us to stay in the state that we are. He wants to move us forward. As we said at the beginning, God knows exactly what he's doing in your life. So my counsel to you is to cooperate with him because God is all-powerful. He's got this. Trust him because he's faithful. We will be let down by everyone in this room, but we will never be let down by God. And finally, rest in his love because he's good. Let's pray. Father, these are things that um, 
quite frankly, are, are just beyond us. The things that, that we're being called to do in this passage of Scripture are impossible if we try to do this in our own strength and with our own wisdom and our own resources. But we're so grateful that we have not been left to our own devices. But even as we sang earlier, your spirit dwells within us to give us the power, to, to give us the ability and the strength and the patience and the wisdom and all these other things for us to walk the path that you've called us to. Father, we beg you to give us those resources this morning. We beg for wisdom. We beg for your mercy and for your sustaining grace. There are people in this room who are facing a huge trial right now. Would you especially show your grace and comfort to them? Would you, would you minister to their spirits with your spirit? Would you allow the body to come around them and to comfort them in ways that they never thought possible? Would you do it for the sake of your name, for the blessing of your people, and for the witness of Christ in this community? And all God's people said, amen. Amen.